and we'll pray that the streaming people are able to come on or we'll, we'll just lose them all. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we are grateful to uh, be here today. We are grateful to have the opportunity to study your word, to come back here to the story of Samuel and Saul, and we pray as we do each week that you would open these ancient writings to our minds and our hearts, help us to see in them the revelation of who you are, the truth about who we are as humans, as your people, um, and just lead us forward as we strive to grow in our discipleship. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we are in the anointing of Saul story. Now that is a, it's a long piece of scripture. And um, it happens slowly. And I think probably the reason is because it is so significant. So let's just go back and... and um, remember that when the people come to Samuel and demand a king like everybody else has, God tells Samuel that they are not rejecting Samuel as judge. They are rejecting God. That's what God says. They are rejecting me, God says, not you. But go back and warn them about what they're asking for. And so in 1 Samuel 8, um, the people are gathered and Samuel warns them. And the warning he gives is that the kings are takers. They'll take your livestock, they'll take your grain, they'll take your women, They'll take your sons and send them to war. They are take, 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 take. Now you gotta lock that in your brain and I will help you with this, but when we come to the story of David and Bathsheba, a long time from now, we're gonna need to remember that. That 1 Samuel 8, the kings are gonna be takers, 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 takers. You don't want one. You don't want one. God is to be their king. They weren't to be like everybody else on the planet. Everybody else on the planet had a human king. You know, this tribe, that tribe, this nation, that nation, this empire, that empire. They were not to be like that. They were chosen by God to be the ones through whom God would rescue humanity and they were to be different. They were to be, they were to be set aside for God's purposes. Yet, they want a human king and in the end, what does God do? He's going to give them a human king because this, way make, this is what makes most sense to me is that they are adults. And they're not robots and they're not, they're not children. They're old enough to make decisions. They're old enough to give God his, their love and the honor um, and devotion that God is due, or they, and they are old enough to withhold all of that, right? So God will allow them to have a king, and, but God is going to have Samuel anoint this king. And this person is named Saul, he's a Benjaminite. And last week we read through the first part of that story. 
when Saul is out looking for a couple of animals that had gotten away from his father. And Samuel finds them, and, and um, uh, I'll pick up at verse 25. Now, we've already been told that Samuel looks the part, right? Wait, Saul looks the part. Saul looks the part. That's why I use Gaston. Saul is taller than average. He's really handsome. He looks like he came from central casting. He looks like he's going to be the perfect king, right? But looks can be deceiving, right? The old adage is about not judging a book by its cover and all of that. So I'm going to leave Gaston up for a minute here. Are, they, are we online? Hey, online people, okay. Great, I'm glad you're here. Who's ever left, whoever persevered for the last 20 minutes, turn to 1 Samuel. I haven't even really started yet, except a, a little ramp up to today. 1 Samuel, chapter 9, verse, I don't know, maybe 22. Where is it? Where's the beginning of this? Um, verse 25. We'll start there. Just to go back to last week a little bit, bring it forward. This whole anointing story encompasses chapter 9 and chapter 10. Different things are happening, okay? So, this is Samuel and Saul. After they came down from the high place, this is like where an altar would be, Samuel talked with Saul on the roof of his house. They rose about daybreak, and Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Get ready, and I will send you on your way. When Saul got ready, he and Samuel went outside together. As they were going down to the edge of the town, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to go on ahead of us. And the servant did so. But you stay here for a while so that I may give you a message from God. Whoa. That's pretty close to the Blues Brothers, isn't it? Sorry what I do okay you know one time I was teaching some class that might have been on Paul and I titled it Paul on a mission from God and the first night of class this is way back I dressed up like one of the Blues Brothers I had the little hat and the glasses the whole business oh yeah it was awesome <laughs> chapter 10 verse 1 then Samuel, so the two men are just standing there together. The servant's been sent on ahead, right? So then Samuel took a flask of olive oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, like on the cheek, maybe on the lips, I don't know, saying, has not Yahweh anointed your, you ruler over his inheritance? Now it's interesting that in the Hebrew that word ruler is a word for like a leader, but it's not the word for king. The word for king is melech. It's not that word. Okay? God is to be their king. God will always be their king. So, even though Saul will, will become, of course, known as the king of Israel, has not Yahweh anointed you ruler over his inheritance? So that is the anointing of Saul. We get a lot of the story perhaps so that we understand that this anointing is an anointing of Saul as king, differentiated from other anointings. Prophets are anointing, 
people would be anointed with oil, put oil on them if they're sick, because in the ancient world they couldn't really do a lot, so they would anoint people with oil and pray over them and try to, you know, hope that God would make them well. But here this is anointing with oil for Saul, and he becomes what we could call or should call the anointed one. And that anoint the word the anointed one in Hebrew is Mashiach. And it comes into English as Messiah. It go, comes into Greek as Christos, and then into English as Christ. So it's a royal title. The word Messiah has a royal term. It's a king term. Christ is a is a title, not a name. Christ is a king word. It's a royal word. Alright? And the kings of Israel would be anointed, as Samuel is anointing Saul here. So, but that's all kind of, okay. Any questions about that? Yes? Up until the moment that Samuel did this anointing with the oil, and he, well, in the moments prior to that, he was alone with Saul on the rooftop and everything. Did Saul have any idea at that, in those moments, what was ahead for him? That he was. So my question is, the question is, do I think that Saul knew what was ahead, what was coming? Yeah. I, my answer to that's no. And the reason I say no is because then Saul says, when they come down, Saul says to Samuel, I have a message from God for you. And at that even at that minute, I don't know that Saul really is, would be fully aware of what lies ahead. But in the next moment, he's anointed by, by, by Samuel. Is he a shepherd type himself? I mean, he was running around no. collecting his father's Well, his father lost livestock. some livestock, so I guess I'd call him a cowboy. Ooh. But, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I, I wouldn't call him a shepherd. Shepherding was something usually left to younger people, surprisingly to women. It, it, it wasn't, it, it, shepherding in the ancient world was really a very low class position. Like the shepherds on the hillsides when Jesus is born, the angels come pretty much to the lowest of the low in terms of the way people saw the world and the way people saw social classes and all of that kind of thing because the shepherds would have to live with their flocks. And, you know, who really is going to volunteer very much to go out and live with the sheep on the hillsides? Okay? Anything else? So, now Samuel is speaking. He says, Has not Yahweh anointed you ruler over his inheritance? This is God's inheritance. These are God's people. This is God's deal. Right? Um, and God has, has anointed Saul as the ruler over something that belongs to God. When you leave me today, Samuel says, you will meet two men near Rachel's tomb. That's a landmark in the center part of Israel. Here's the map. All the action is happening around the red star and where the bottom arrow is pointing. In there, that same central area that we've been talking about here. Okay. At near Rachel's tomb at Zelza, Zelza on the border of Benjamin. 
Now these two men will say to you, the donkeys you set out to look for have been found. And now your father has stopped thinking about them and is worried about you. He's asking, what shall I do about my son? This is just an anxious parent. You can identify with that, can't you, Patty? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Then you will go from there. This is still Samuel telling Saul what lies ahead. Then you will go from there until you reach the great tree of Tabor. Three men going up to worship God at Bethel will meet you there. Bethel is, um, I've got a closer. Uh, I, okay, so here is, here is Bethel. Right there. House of God is what it means. So, go back to verse 3. Samuel says to him, Then you will go on from there until you reach the great tree of Tabor. Three men going up to worship God at Bethel will meet you there. One will be carrying three young goats, another three loaves of bread, and another a skin of wine. So we got goats, we got bread, we got wine. They will greet you and offer you two loaves of bread, which you will accept from them. Right? I imagine Saul is, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> After that, you will go to Gibeah of God, where there is a Philistine outpost. As you approach the town, you will meet a procession of prophets. So this is the third sign. What's the first sign? The two men near Rachel's tomb. What's the second sign? The three guys with the goats, the bread, and the wine. That's the second sign. And the third sign is to go to this town called Gibeah, where there's a little Philistine outpost. As you approach the town, Samuel says, you will meet a procession of prophets coming down from the high place. High places are where worship happens, whether you're an Israelite or a pagan, Babylonian, Assyrian, Egyptian, it's always the high places because those are the places that are closest to God because God is right up there across these religions, if we want to put it that way. As you approach the town, you will meet a procession of prophets. Now, we're used to prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Micah, prophets sent from God, right? In the ancient world, there were lots of prophets who wandered around. They would be sometimes men of God, sometimes seers, the Greeks called them oracles, prophets. They're not all from God. Most are not from God. Okay? Some are, some aren't, but they're not, they're not like Isaiah or Jeremiah. And um, even the ones, well, you meet bands of them, groups of them, in the stories from, from this time period. And 
Samuel says to Saul, as you approach the town, you will meet a procession of prophets coming down from the high place with lyres, timbrels, timbrels, pipes, and harps being played before them, and they will be prophesying. Now that prophesying, gosh, people don't agree about what to think of, of this. People, I mean scholars who spend their lives on this stuff. Is it some sort of ecstatic speech, like speaking in tongues or something like that? Are they, are they just coming down and sharing the spirit of God in some way with people around them like you and I might do and we're greeting people on Sunday morning or... Uh, it's hard to say because it's just... We, 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 get met, we have trouble here because we want to interpret all of this within the context of the New Testament as well and what Paul has to say about prophets and it just just kind of leads us probably to the wrong place so but Samuel says okay they will be prophesying and then in the NIV verse 6 the spirit of Yahweh will come powerfully upon you so notice how the S is capitalized in the NIV it is not capitalized in many translations. Um, is, is the Hebrew here referring to the Holy Spirit, which is what is implied by the NIV, or not? Um, we can see somebody today, and we can say about, we can see them, maybe we can say, oh man, um, the Spirit's really in them today, right? Or God is really with them today. Or you can really see God at work in them today. And you're going to say to me, or I would say to myself, okay, well, but I know the Holy Spirit dwells in me. But I also know that the Holy Spirit um, created the church on Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit had returned, I believe, after the destruction, destruction of the temple about um, nearly 600 years before Jesus. And at this time, God's empowering presence is in the tabernacle. Okay, so is this really, are we, for the Hebrews would never understand this to be the Holy Spirit in the same way that you and I do. Because they, they had no sense of peering inside God's unity and seeing a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit or something. So it's, a, it, it's probably best thought of as maybe God's hand being on, on someone. Because what's going to happen is, it's, this sign is all about Saul being filled with the Spirit of God being God's hand of being on Saul. That's a good way. I like that way of putting it. God's hand of being on Saul. Because what's going to happen later is Saul is going to the, the spirit of him, in him, the spirit of God in him diminishes as he basically descends into madness. So you can decide for yourselves. If you like to think of this as the Holy Spirit, that's good. There will be people who agree with you. If you see it more as, you know, God's 
someone filled with the Spirit of God, God's hand being on someone, that's cool too because people who know a lot more about this than I do don't agree. But the NIV has the capital S because they, those translators, understand this to be the Holy Spirit. So is that clear as mud? Did I dance around that whole thing pretty well? Okay. The Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you and you will prophesy with them and you will be changed into a different person. Now, is he born again? In, the sen in a New Testament sense? No. No. That being born again or born a second time in the New Testament sense is a consequence of Jesus. And Jesus lies more than a thousand years ahead. It's say, to me, what it's saying is God's hand will be on Saul in a way that God's hand was not on Saul before, and God will fill him with power, and people will see it, and he will be a changed person because of it. But I just think you have to be reluctant to take a bunch of New Testament stuff and come back and just apply it, apply it all here. That's my take. But if you want to do something else with it, that's okay too. She says, you will prophesy with them and you will be changed into a different person. Once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hand finds to do for God is with you. That's a very standard Hebrew way to say it. God is with you. God is with you. God is with you. God is going to be with Saul in a way that God wasn't with Saul before. That's another way I'd put it. What does it mean when Saul's going to prophesy? Is it something like ecstatic language, which is sort of like speaking in tongues? Or I mean, what is it? I don't know. I'd like to find out, but we're not, I don't think we're really told enough. So Samuel's not done, though. Go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I think that's also, yeah, right there, right down the Jordan River, Gilgal. Go down to Gilgal. I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings, fellowship offerings, but you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. Okay, so let's just drop back to something easier. <laughs> Samuel gives Saul three signs, three things that are going to transpire. And why does, why does, why, why? What are those things about? What they're about is they're like, they're like confirmation. They're like, yes, you have really been anointed by me on behalf of God as the ruler of God's inheritance, the people of Israel. And here are three things that are going to happen, and these should validate that. And when the three things have all transpired, you are going to be a changed person because God is going to be with you in a way that God has not been with you before. How about that? You know? <clears throat> you always got to remember, how old are these writings? These writings are from long before Jesus. Ancient, ancient, ancient. So, any thoughts, questions before we go on? Scott, one thought that 
were all the tribes together mm -hmm. at this point in time? I know I have this fixation with numbers, but... That's, and, and, and that fixation with numbers is going to let you down in the ancient world because we don't really know. Ancient populations were much smaller than in our world. A couple hundred thousand maybe? You know, it's a long, long time ago. And so you put all the tribes together, maybe something. You know, you'll read in scripture about, the, about them assembling an army of 300,000. That's hyperbole. They, they didn't have means to support armies of 300,000. The world did not have, countries, nations, didn't have the means to support giant armies until the Industrial Revolution. That, that's what, that changed warfare a great deal because if you're going to assemble an army, what, are they, what, what needs to happen? You've got to feed them. That's why trains mattered so much in the American Civil War. Right? Because you've got to feed these big armies that you're assembling to do things with. And this is a thousand years before Jesus. The hyperbole appears in scripture as a way of speaking of Israel's strength, a way of honoring your ancestors. Um, you know, we want, we want to imagine that dates, years, numbers matter as much to them as they do to us, but they don't. They don't live by our standards of, of counting things. And, I mean, they didn't even have clocks. Nobody knew, right? They didn't even have clocks. So that where's the sun, you know, something like that. So it kind of, just think about it. If you were just, I don't know, yeah, morning's wearing on. That's about the best you could do by looking at where the sun was, except on a cloudy day. And then you're just going to like, well, I don't know. I'll keep going until it gets dark. So there's so many things that are in our world that we take for granted that they didn't have. And so... Numbers and counting is certainly, certainly one of them. So, yeah. It's interesting if you jump about a thousand years, and now we have Jesus going into Jerusalem. Yes. What does he tell his apostles? Go to this town, you will find a couple boroughs or whatever. Yeah. So Don is pointing out that a parallel to this would be Jesus on Palm Sunday when he tells his disciples to go and find the, the, the donkey that he's going to ride in on. That's and already That's already there. Jesus knows it's there. It is going to be part of the fulfillment of messianic symbols that Jesus is assembling around himself on Sunday. So when he rides in, it's very clear that yes, he is. He is Messiah. Right. There you go. First king of Israel. Jesus is Messiah, which means he is what? King. And indeed, indeed, Don, to go one step further with that, because we know that Jesus is not merely Messiah, but also God, then essentially God as king rides into Jerusalem. Yahweh returns to Zion on Palm Sunday. Oh, it's stirring. We'll talk about that when we get to Palm Sunday. Patty. Yeah, I just have one question. Um, this, the third place that he is told to go, Gibeah, Gibeah yes. whatever, 
they mention it's a Philistine outpost. So when I first started reading this and hearing the prophets are coming down with symbols and all this stuff, I right away am thinking they are prophets of Baal or Asherah, somebody else, a foreign god. Yet these prophets... They're probably Israelite prophets, not prophets of Baal. Um, because of what's going to happen. And remember, I talked last week about how, you know, another way. See, we have very clear boundaries between the U.S. and Canada, right? And so we, we think in those terms, ah, not in this world. The boundaries were very ambiguous, very fluid. You'd have a Philistine outpost pushing to the east, and you'd have Israelite towns pushing to the west, and those kind of things would kind of just kind of drift back and forth, depending upon who was a little bit more ascended at the time. It's just, um, none, of these none of these people live in nation states or things that are constructed the way our world is. They're, they're, they're tribes. And so I, these are prophets of Israel, and. Um, they are intermixed with people who are not Israelites. Uh, another thing we don't grasp is that when the book of Joshua tells the story of the conquering of the Promised Land, right? When we think in those terms, we think, well, okay, they conquered it. And for us, that means everything. But in this world, what happened was they, they, they made their way in, <laughs> they settled in some land amidst, amidst pagan towns and villages and people, and they managed to not capture the equivalent of New York and Chicago and L.A. So the conquering even has a different way. They, put, they get, make their way in, but the stories are of a people living amongst, the Israelites living amongst other people. One of the things that will happen here as a result of the tribes coming together under Saul and David and Solomon is that the cohesion of the tribes and the extent of this Israelite kingdom will grow. And um, so, an example. Jerusalem. Is that an Israelite city at this time? Nope. The Jebusites have it. David will conquer it. So you got to keep on. It's real. It's a lot more fluid than, than we tend to think of we things today. Yes? Was, yes? Looking at that area right there that you have on your map. Uh-huh. It's small. It's small. Let me go back to this map. Okay. Okay. Down in the bottom here, there's Beersheba. Okay? Which is sort of the bot, because everything down here is pretty much desert wilderness. So, from Beersheba to the top of the red there, which is basically Dan, and from the Mediterranean to the Jordan River, maybe a little bit beyond, you could fit that into space from Denton 
to Waxahachie and Fort Worth to Grand Prairie. It's very small. In 2011, we led, Patty and I led a cruise trip that included Israel. And we were supposed to dock in the north one day at, um, well, it's on the map, it's where Mount Carmel is, and docked the second day down here. But the ship didn't move, the ship was nervous about things. So when we wanted to look at Jerusalem, we just got on a bus up here and just bust down to Jerusalem. We lost some time, but we had a really good day. The distances are small. It's a small place, but here's the key. All of this, gosh, there's a lot of wasteland there. This, this is green. This, this is where armies would have to move through to get at one another. So if you have Egypt over here and you have the mighty Assyrians up there, they want to get at each other, it's going to be through here. It's not, not here. This is, this is <laughs> you're not going to support armies in that wilderness out there. Yeah. They're all speaking variants of Semitic languages. Now, if you're living in and amongst other people, you would generally have a way to, to, to speak, right? To communicate. So that would take time to develop, and that is, that would take some time. When they show up from Egypt, I would bet you about a decent amount of money that they had a difficult time communicating with any of the neighboring peoples in the promised land who they did not chase out, who stayed. But I'm also betting you that over time they are able to communicate with them because the languages that come out of this land are called Semitic languages. And um, they have a lot of commonality among them. So it's like I learned on a trip to, to Europe once a long while back that Spaniards and Italians have no trouble communicating. The languages are so close, easy peasy, no problem. They don't like to admit it all the time, but, but they are, as opposed to something like French, which is different, or German, which is, which is different yet. But, but the so-called Romance languages coming out of Latin, you know, it's a fascinating story. I don't know that much about it, but it, Sure, people over time learn how to communicate. I mean, I, I mean, I try to get by in a McDonald's these days, so I've had to brush up my Spanish. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So Don is pointing out that borders didn't matter much. No, borders didn't matter much. What mattered was who controlled the water, particularly wells. So if you have a, a, a town, a village, you needed two things. You needed walls and you needed water, which meant you needed a well, preferably inside the city walls. Because if it wasn't inside the city walls, you could ha you, you, the enemy could lay siege to you and cut you off from water and sort of starve you out because of the lack of water. The story of David taking Jerusalem revolves around the water supply in Jerusalem, right? So yeah, this land is dry. Water, water, water. It's why, it's why well, okay, so Elijah 
after all of this, this is later, Elijah goes to, to King Ahab and says, ah, you know, my God's going to bring a drought. And the reason that's a challenge to King Ahab, who worships Baal, is that Baal is the god of rain, of life. And so it's a demonstration of who's really, who's really on top, Yahweh or Baal. So, and it all revolves around water. Okay. Doing okay? Did I answer your question, Patty? Enough? Okay. So, let's just go on to verse 9. This is all still the same thing of this how does Saul end up being king. As, as Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed Saul's heart. Okay. God changed Saul's heart. Um, God would be with Saul. God changes Saul's heart. He's a different person. God changes his heart. God is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Jesus is God. The Father is God. They share one will. They share one glory. They share one majesty. They share one purpose. Because there is only one God. And now God has changed Saul's heart. And you need to mark that because it will help you appreciate the tragedy when Saul begins to descend into the darkness. Okay? And all these signs were fulfilled that day. Well, of course they were, because God gave them to Samuel, Samuel gave them to Saul, of course they were. We don't get the story of each one being fulfilled, but of course they were. That's the point. When he and his servant arrived at Gibeah, a procession of prophets met him. The Spirit of God came powerfully upon him, and he joined in their prophesying. Whatever exactly is happening, it is a mark of God being with Saul. in a way that God had not been with Saul before. When all those who had formerly known Saul saw him prophesying with the prophets, they asked each other, well, what is this that's happened to the son of Kish? That's his dad, his father. Is Saul also among the prophets? What's going on? What's happening? That isn't the same guy who went out looking for those two donkeys. What happened to him while he was gone? Well, a man who lived there answered, and who is their father? And so it became a saying, is Saul also among the prophets? That's a mysterious little bit. Um, who is their father? Probably referring to the leader of the prophets. The point being, um, uh, the, what is the point? Verse 13, after Saul stopped prophesying, he went to the high place. That's where you go to worship God. The point of it is that God is now with Saul. Saul has been named king. Samuel, Samuel has anointed him and God is with Saul. Okay? Now, verse 14. Now Saul's uncle asked him 
and his servants, where have you been? Looking for the donkeys, Saul said. But when we saw that they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. Now Samuel, of course, is the judge of Israel. So pretty much anybody would probably know who Samuel is at this point. And Saul replied, he assured us that the donkeys had been found. But he did not tell his uncle what Samuel had said about the kingship. Many of you at this moment are wondering, well, why didn't he tell his uncle? I don't know. He kept it to himself. He didn't want his uncle to think he was crazy. What do you mean? I mean, yeah. You might look like this, but you're not king material, Saul. <coughs> right? So. Might. I mean, because anybody could step forward and say all kinds of things, right? I mean, that's always a question, right? There's not. He. he um, it's the whole thing just happens slowly and the, the validation maybe you'd be a good word to use here is important and so he just keeps his mouth shut he doesn't tell his uncle what has happened well verse 17 okay Samuel summoned the people of Israel to Yahweh at Mizpah And said to them, this is what Yahweh, the God of Israel, says. And quote. This is God speaking. I brought Israel up out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the power of Egypt, and all the kingdoms that oppressed you. But you have now rejected your God, who saves you out of all your disasters and calamities, and you have said, no, appoint a king over us. So Samuel says, so now present yourselves before Yahweh by your tribes and clans. So how many are gathered there at Mizpah? I don't know. This artist has lots of little heads down there, right? I think that's supposed to be people. Represents a lot of people. What? Verse 20, now, when Samuel had all Israel come forward by tribes, the tribe of Benjamin was taken, now pay attention to this next part, the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. So, they're choosing a king. They're choosing a king. And the way they're going to choose a king is by Lot. By, what's by Lot? Throwing dice, short straws, whatever it might be. So they, they, they come up, they spin what 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 they spin the wheel of fortune. So got twelve got 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 twelve little slices on it, they spin the wheel of fortune, and it comes up what? Benjamin. Okay? Clan by then he brought forward the tribe of Benjamin, clan by clan. And so however many clans were in the tribe of Benjamin, the wheel is spun again and it comes up. Matri's clan. Then they take the clan. They have all the slices on for all of the men in that clan, the grown men, and they spin it. And finally, son of Kish was taken. So 
So what is that all about? Saul's already been anointed. Why? Which the people don't know. Why do they do this business of spinning the wheel of fortune, drawing short straws, throwing by lot, throwing dice? So he was legitimate in the eyes of the people. Yes, but what do the people think is happening? That God is guiding the lots. God is guiding the lots. God is the one who determines where the wheel of fortune lands. First spin Benjamin, second spin Matri's clan, third spin Saul, right? It's God who is making that happen. It's God who is, they di it's New Testament. After Judas betrays Jesus, he kills himself, meaning that there are 11 disciples when the book of Acts opens. And there needs to be how many disciples in the, the inner group? 12. Because there were 12 tribes of Israel, Jesus has formed a new Israel around himself, and so there must be 12 disciples who will now become 12 apostles, the 12, capital T. How do they replace Judas in Acts chapter 1? By lots. Exactly. And it comes up Matthias, right, I think? They do it by lot because for the ancient people, they, every, and it's, this is not just the Jews, the Hebrews, the Israelites, for ancient peoples, nearly everything that happens in life happens because the gods make it so. Which direction the wind blows from, whether it rains or not, why is there a drought of three years in Israel after Elijah confronts Ahab, is it just meteorological, huh? is it just El Nino? <laughs> no, it's because God makes it happen. Um, in the leadership at Qumran, which is the community of Jews living by the Dead Sea, leaders could not have infirmities, lost limbs. Why? because those were seen as something having been inflicted by God on them because of their sin, their offense against God. These were the explanations they had for everything. We, we know a great deal more about God's creation than these people did, right? So you have to let these people be people of 3,000 years ago when you come to read a book like 1 Samuel. Don't pretend that they have in their heads or that they, any understanding, they don't, they don't, think, they don't think they live on a globe. They, they live on, on a flat bunch of land supported by pillars and above it are, is a dome and in that dome there are windows, the windows of heaven. And when the windows of heaven open, the water falls. And that's what rain is. So, it's just always good to remind yourself of those things. So here they do this by lot. But what does it accomplish is what Jim says. It accomplishes the legitimacy, I guess, of Saul. In that the people have, God has chosen him, and the people can see that happening. They don't have to rely on whatever message Samuel claims God gave him.
Do I have that right, do you think? So, back to Gaston. Verse 22, so they, you know, so Saul's not anywhere to be found. So they inquired further of Yahweh. Has the man come here yet? And the Lord said, yes, he has hidden himself among the supplies. Now you're going to ask me, how is that happening? How are they talking to God? I would bet you dollars to donuts it's by throwing lots. Usually these things are, have yes, no answers. I don't know where the supply stuff comes from, but it's usually yes, no answers. And they would do it by by throwing lots or by taking lots or something like that. Because it doesn't say Samuel did. And says, so they inquired further of Yahweh, has the man here come, come here yet? And, and God, who is running all these lots in terms of the wheel of fortune and stuff, says, yes, he's hidden himself among the supplies. Huh. <laughs> doesn't sound like Gaston, does it? No. Why is he, so they ran and brought him out. And as he stood among the people, he was a head taller than any of the others. Okay? Samuel said to all the people, Do you see the man Yahweh has chosen? There was no one like him among all the people. And the people shouted what? Long live the king! Long live the king! Long live the king! But who is, who is to be their king in truth? God. Is God supposed to be their king? This is actually not a good moment. This is not a good moment. God's, gonna, God, God's letting them do it, but it's because, you know, we bear the consequences of our choices. And this is their choice, and they will bear the consequence of it. Long live the king, the people shouted. Yahoo, Yahoo. Forgetting completely everything Samuel said about, you know, those kings, they're takers, 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 takers. They'll take everything you got. They'll take everything you... Yeah. <laughs> Isn't it still kind of true? I mean, you know, really. I joined the military because I didn't want to get drafted. I didn't want to get taken. I said, I'll go. So I was sort of voluntold in that way. Because I had such a low draft lottery number. My draft lottery number was 5 out of 365. Well, that'll do it. That'll do it. So I said, oh, I'm going. So I said, okay, I'll be voluntold. And I did it kind of the way I wanted to do it, which was great because I got to fly jet airplanes. But it was still, I don't think, if my number had come up 350, I don't think that would ever have happened. Okay, so verse 25. Samuel explained to the people the rights and duties of kingship. Notice duties. A dominant theme in the Old Testament and a dominant theme really among other peoples was that kings were to be good shepherds. One of the most ancient civilizations is the Sumerian civilization that comes from the Mesopotamian basin between the Tigris and Euphrates. Ancient Iraq, ancient Babylon comes later. And the Sumerians go back to like before the pyramids were built, like 3000 BC and before. And we have images representing the Sumerian king. And the Sumerian king isn't wearing big, fancy, warlike headdresses. He's wearing a shepherd's cap. Just a simple shepherd's cap. Isn't that interesting? Interesting. 
So the king was to be, in addition to being the chief warrior, and the king was to be a good shepherd. And there are a lot in Jeremiah and Ezekiel about how the kings of Israel failed to be a good shepherd. So God would have to be the good shepherd himself. And you can tie every bit of that to Jesus in John 10 when he says, I am the good shepherd. So, explained to, Samuel explained to the people the rights and duties of kingship. He wrote them down on a scroll. He deposited it before Yahweh. He's going to leave it in a holy place. Why in a holy place? Because this is all about God. This is not about, you know, like our Declaration of Independence we put in the Library of Congress. This is all about God. These are his people. And the most important things that they do, the most important documents that they have, are documents about their relationship with God. And Saul is now God's king. Remember, he is, how did God put it? Samuel put it. He is the ruler over God's inheritance. He is the trustee. God has entrusted the Israelites to Saul. And now the rights and duties that go with that job of being God's trustee in that sense are um, Samuel writes them down and they're going to be deposited before Yahweh. It's a holy moment. Then Samuel dismissed the people to go to their own homes. Samuel also went to his home in Gibeah accompanied by valiant men. Hmm, I love that. Valiant men. There's, there's words we, that are really good words we don't use very much anymore. But, and a lot of them are words built upon ideas of, or built around virtues. Valiant to me is, is a good word. Valiant is a word of courage. Um, remember when I, I was a boy, there was a cartoon strip called Prince Valiant. Is that true? Yeah, I didn't read it. I didn't like it. I thought it was boring. But <laughs> I do remember it in the Sunday paper, you know. Yeah, Prince, Prince Valiant. But he was accompanied by valiant men whose hearts God had touched. That's beautiful. Yeah, Don. They knew he was a god, so sure. It's just, it's it's a, it's a, it's a, but he's not an intermediate intermediary in the sense of a priest, because the priestly office and the kingly office are not put together here. There's going to be a line of priests that's different from the line of kings. So um, he is their ruler. Their ruler anointed by... God's prophet Samuel. So, but he's not the intermediary in the way the priests are. Okay? He is their, he is their ruler. He's going to guide them forward. But he was like a chief executive, but not the head of the, not the board chairman. God is the chairman of the board still, right? Well, if you want to put a corporate text, well, I mean, I mean, God is, if Saul is the CEO, 
God is the board, chairman of the board. Okay, what do I think about that? Um, God rules over the entire cosmos, right? So nobody, no, the, the ultimate one in charge is God. So he is, he is, he, I like, I like the word trustee. God has entrusted to Saul the right to rule over God's inheritance, to rule over these people. In a way, the judges didn't. You see, the judges, they would rally the people but, and settle disputes amongst the tribes, but that's as far as it went. Now there will be a king who will have kingly powers. And in this world, a king has absolute powers. And that's going to prove to be this enormous problem. And the, if you ask somebody, what is the primary job of a king in this world? It is to lead the people in battle against the enemy, to protect them, to be their warrior in chief. Not, not to, you know, what? Not to have education departments and all that other stuff. So anyway, okay. So, Saul went to his home in Gibeah, accompanied by valiant men whose hearts God had touched, but some scoundrels, I like that word too, some scoundrels said, how could this fellow save us? From whom? Every time you save from something or some whom? Enemies? Yeah, the Philistines, okay. right? Because the Philistines are the big enemy. And they, remember, if we go back a couple chapters, they had already had big battles with the Philistines. They lost the Ark of the Covenant, then they got the Ark of the Covenant back and all that stuff. So the Philistines are going to remain and these scoundrels look at Saul and they say, well, he might look like the part, but we don't know anything about him. Are we going to really follow him into battle? How can this fellow save us? These scoundrels ask. Now, that's just what I love about 1 Samuel. So look at look what happened. Look, look what's said next. They despised him. They brought him no gifts. But Saul kept silent. You think Saul's making little lists? <laughs> what do you think? You think Saul is making little lists? Oh, yeah, I bet he is. Okay. So, well, that worked out well. When we come back next week, we're going to come to the story. Yes? Are the scoundrels a part of the people that were considered valiant men? No. The valiant men are with Saul. The scoundrels are just Israelites who don't know and don't trust Saul. Yeah. But they're Israelites. They're Israelites. Just because it's Saul does how many times in your life have you run into a situation when, when everybody's happy about anything? No. no. It's not how we are. So, anyway. Okay, well, I notice it's 115, end of chapter 10, right? So, I will pray, and we will pick up in chapter 11 next week. Would you pray with me? Gracious Lord, as we leave here, 
Help us to acknowledge and to live our lives with the faith that indeed you, you, you are our master, that you're a master of everything, that you are, this is your universe and we are your people. And may we be ever grateful that your love for us is relentless that you pursue us across the centuries, across the lands, because you want us to come back to you, to be in a right relationship with you. And to accomplish that, you gave us your son, Jesus, and may we embrace him every single day and the gift that he has given to us in his faithfulness. All this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Okay. Thank you, folks. That was fun.